lives matter. That's become a familiar chant in the streets of America since the killing of George Floyd was recorded on video just a few weeks ago. That incident has also pushed a phrase into the mainstream conversation, a phrase that was previously on the fringe. And that phrase is systemic racism. It's a loaded phrase, means different things to different people, suggests different courses of action, depending on different ways of thinking. Hi, I'm Orman Alney, and this is the podcast, How the World Works from the UCLA Anderson School, where Miguel Unsueta is a professor of management and dean of MBA programs. He is widely published, widely recognized for studies about diversity, bias, and discrimination. Professor Unsueta, welcome aboard. Hi, Warren. Happy to be here. Glad to hear that. Are you surprised to be hearing so many people in so many places talking about systemic racism? It's um, It's been a strange um, turn of events for sure. Um, so I actually studied um, the psychology of systemic racism or how people react to the concept that racism can actually manifest through policies and procedures that are just out there in the world and not necessarily through nasty racist or bigots. And I was studying this when I was in graduate school in the early 2000s. And in my field of psychology, it wasn't very common to think of prejudice as uh, something that can exist outside of the person. And certainly within sort of public discourse, there was very little talk of systemic racism. If anything, people would talk about, you know, how, you know, it's all about bigotry. It's all about individual races out there in the world. And you rarely saw them. And therefore, people assume racism wasn't really a problem. So do people want to deny that there is systemic racism and that the differences that you uh, enumerate between that and just racism really exist? So I, I think there's a couple of things going on, and it also depends on on who it is you're talking about in terms of the, the person's own social identities. I think the concept of systemic racism, it's harder to understand than individual level racism. It's a much more abstract concept, right? You have to um, essentially accept that there are policies and procedures out there that on the face might be race neutral, but still yield um, racially unequal outcomes. Um, you also have to understand the, the history of the country, which was built on the oppression of racial minorities and other subordinate groups um, so that members of majorities could benefit. And a lot of these policies still remain on the books. And those dynamics that they created are still very much in play today. So you have to accept that a, race, a racist system does not need people that are actively trying to oppress. All you really do is got to go along and the status quo will benefit the majority and will disadvantage uh, the minority. I've also done some work looking at the psychology of white Americans and the way they react to different versions of racism. And uh, I actually found in some of my early work that white Americans tend to shy away from the concept of systemic racism because once you accept that racism is systemic and thus not just a product of bigots or nasty attitudes, but rather something that exists out there in society via policies, procedures, and institutions. Once you accept that, you start seeing that those systems actually benefit you as a member of the majority racial group. And what that does is that it makes you privy to white privilege, which I have shown in my work and in the work of my collaborators is quite threatening to white Americans. So 
a much safer conception of racism is to just think, well, it's about individual bigots. And I'm not a bigot. I have black friends. I have Latino friends. Uh, therefore, it's all good. And it doesn't sort of, it doesn't put you, um, or it doesn't question the deservingness of anything you have because there is no connotation for um, for your own success because it's about individual attitudes, not not the system. And we see again and again that white people not just failing to understand uh, what is something difficult to grasp, but also uh, being outraged at the very idea that it is being proposed and denying any uh, ability to accept it. Yeah, I mean, people take it very personally. And um, I mean, I think right now we're seeing a reckoning when it comes to race. We're seeing white Americans being confronted with um, the ugly reality of the history of this country and how that ugly history presents itself in, in the present day. And I mean, it, it just sort of makes logical sense that you cannot have a system that systematically oppresses a set of people. That by definition means that the group on top is going to benefit from it. And so I think people take that very personally. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a threat to the whole idea of meritocracy, to the whole idea that in America, it's all about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And this is not to say that people don't need to work hard to succeed in this country, but you get a lot more return on your hard work if you belong to a majority group, uh, like being white, than you do if you belong to a minority group, like being African American or Latino. Dr. King said that people should be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Ward Connerly, who is a black man, uh, sponsored a proposition in California to get rid of affirmative action on that basis. It passed overwhelmingly. Now there's a proposition on the ballot to restore affirmative action. Do you welcome that? Do you think that there is now uh, coming to be a, 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 a change uh, that uh, could in fact uh, benefit minority people? Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me the way people use Martin Luther King in the present day. Um, the thing that people need to understand is that Martin Luther King was making those speeches and those proclamations in a time where racism was just so explicit. I mean, white only signs, right? So, you know, in that context, it makes sense that, that he would have been saying you should not judge people based on the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. Unfortunately, that line of argument no longer applies because the nature of racism has changed. We've moved away from white only signs to now um, having these systems be maintained by seemingly race neutral policies and procedures that are just out there in the world. So I think once you understand that background, you would see how policies like affirmative action make sense, right? To the extent that promising students of color uh, who are probably going to underfunded schools don't have access to the kind of tutoring that would up your SAT score, which is what you need to get into a top school. Well, that suggests that's a systematic bias in the system. And to the extent that universities are weighing SAT scores without contextualizing that SAT score, well, that would be an impediment for anybody trying to come up uh, into the system. So to the extent that affirmative action would help contextualize that, to the extent that affirmative action would help university officials consider the impact of, of race on a person's academic achievement, I think that would be a good thing. And I think it would certainly diversify college campuses in California much more so um, than they are right now. There's nothing new, though, about systemic racism. You refer to the uh, the reality of American uh, history. 
It's really been baked into institutions since the Civil War. Yeah, no, it, it really has. And, um, you know, when I said earlier that Martin Luther King was, you know, living in a very different world than the one we live in um, when it comes to white-only signs and, and just explicit segregation, or sort of beneath that were still policies that explicitly uh, benefited um, white Americans. When you talk about history, we keep hearing about incidents that uh, I certainly, as a white man, didn't know about when I was in high school or college, like the uh, horrors that occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, in 1921, or uh, Woodrow Wilson segregating the federal civil service and not wanting blacks and whites to work together. Do you think we're going to see a uncovering of incidents and a reassessment of American history in this context? I mean, I think we're seeing that a little bit now. Um, I think people are calling for contextualization of cultural products. I mean, just a couple of examples, Gone with the Wind, right? HBO pulled the movie from its new um, streaming service, and then they posted it back up with more context to understand that this movie in a lot of ways depicts slavery in unrealistic, arguably rosy sort of ways. And so that context uh, is now being added to those films. So, and I think you're also seeing it with uh, people now targeting monuments all over the country, whether it be Christopher Columbus or statues of Confederate officers and, and Confederate politicians. So I do hope that that is where this movement is taking us, that we are willing to accept the ugliness of American history, that we're willing to contextualize it, and that we're willing to be open and honest about how that ugly history still manifests in the present day. I was struck when I visited Berlin several years back, how when you walk around Berlin, it's very much unlike the US, where they don't shy away from their, their horrible history. I mean, they have references to Hitler and Nazis all over the place, but it is not revisionist history. There's certainly no monuments to Nazis in the city. If anything, there are monuments to buildings and streets that were important in World War II and during the, the Nazi era. And there's context and there's tributes to victims of the crimes of, of the Nazis. And so it's it struck me that it's a society that is very much trying to grapple and be honest with the ugliness of what happened there. And in America, we don't do that. You know, I grew up in Texas and I went to college at the University of Texas. When I was there in the 90s, in our main mall at the university, we had, I think, four Confederate politicians with no context whatsoever of what these people did, whether or not they were um, slave owners, nothing like that. It was just, here's a monument to a great hero. That, I hope, changes. I hope that we are able to look at our past, contextualize it, be honest about it, and then try to reckon with what it means in the present day. Gets complicated when you're tearing down statues, though, when you think about uh, Washington and Jefferson, particularly Jefferson, uh, who, of course, was a slave owner uh, and apparently consorted with slaves, had uh, children by them, and yet, of course, was the author of words uh, that uh, make the heart sore. It's, um, I mean, the reality is these are all very complicated figures. And I'm not trying to say you eradicate their intellectual achievements, or in the case of Jefferson, the fact that he was a founding father and he created the documents upon which this country is based on. 
absolutely we should acknowledge that. But we should also acknowledge that he was a flawed person, that he was a slave owner, and that when he wrote these documents, he wasn't thinking about Black people. And now that we are in the present, we have to just admit that and, and sort of try to recontextualize what all of these documents were and try to reinterpret what they mean in the present day, given that we now live in a pluralistic society that is way more diverse than it used to be in the time of Jefferson. So yeah, all these figures are complex, like all humans. And I think it's really important for us to just accept that complexity and not try to create these heroes that that you know are walking among us like gods. Uh, these are all flawed individuals. And let's talk about those flaws. And let's be honest about what those flaws mean for people in the present day. Once again, I'm a white person. And one of the phrases you've used that has made me think a lot is, white people don't know who's missing. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so we, um, we're we actually doing some work right now, me and my graduate students at, at UCLA. I've done a lot of work on the concept of diversity and what it means to people. And one thing that I have found in about 10 years of, of research, diversity can mean very different things depending uh, on, on who you're talking to. So white Americans in general tend to define diversity in ways that are easier to achieve compared to racial minorities like Latinos or African Americans. So for example, white Americans are likely to call a company diverse if the company has a high percentage of racial minority employees, regardless of where in the company's hierarchy those minority employees happen to be. When you talk to racial minorities, they tend to look at not only the overall percentage of minority employees, but also what percentage of those minority employees are managers as well. So it's sort of a two ingredient definition of diversity for members of minority groups, a single ingredient definition for, for the majority. And so we have found that in general, white Americans define diversity in ways that are easier to achieve. They see more of it. And one thing that we're finding in our latest research is that if you present people with information about a company in which you have a group completely missing. For example, the company is composed of Asian Americans, white Americans, and African Americans, but there are no Latinos present. If you actually don't include that 0%, white Americans don't notice that. But once you add a zero to the way the demographics are reported, white Americans' perceptions of diversity of that company actually drop. Let me ask you about a couple of terms that have come up. The difference between non-racist and anti-racist. There's even a book called How to Be Anti-Racist. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference? So yeah, the term anti-racist, it, it really goes hand in hand with the concept of systemic uh, racism. So if you're being um, anti-racist, you are actively working towards undoing um, the outcomes of systemic racism, right? You are uh, purposely trying to structure your life and the way your organization does things and works to try to minimize uh, racial inequality in society. If you're being non-racist, it's a much more passive stance, right? You're not actively contributing to the increase of racial inequality out there in the world, but you're not doing much, right? Your attitude might be, well, I, you know, I'm not a bigot, um, you know, I'm not, you know, supporting Confederate flags, but you're not actually doing anything to try to change the compositions of organizations or who gets opportunities in society versus who doesn't. So that's what anti-racist refers to is, are you explicitly working towards the eradication of systemic racism in your actions, in the way you live your life, 
in the way you run your organizations. Uh, that's what that refers to. So if you're white like me, uh, and if you have, in fact, gained a lot because of systemic racism over time, why should you want to give it up? And uh, why shouldn't you uh, be antagonistic to the idea of giving it up? I mean, that's a that's a great point. Um, I mean, I, I think I think the reality is if we are trying to create a world that is devoid of racism, that means that certain groups are going to have to give up resources that they got at the expense of other groups. That could be a very difficult ask for some people. I think a lot of the sort of backlash and retrenchment that we're already seeing to the Black Lives Matter movement and to all this talk of systemic racism is exactly that. It's people being like, wait a minute, why do I have to give anything up? And I think what's happening there is that those individuals are not coding everything they've acquired as having benefited from unequal systems and, and systemic inequality that actually benefited you. So why should you have to give it up? I mean, I think if we want a society in which all of us are able to live to our absolute fullest, where the amount of work we put out there in the world ends up getting us the same kind of rewards based strictly on how much work we put out there, then we need a world that that acknowledges that these resources have not been spread out evenly. I think it's a tough ask for a lot of people. And I think it's a tough ask for people who do not code their own success as having been benefited from anything outside of themselves, which I think is a good portion of white Americans. And it's also a good portion of men if we're talking about systemic issues when it comes to gender. I think majority groups in general do not like to acknowledge that they have benefited from belonging to those majority groups. But if you are actually interested in having a society that is equal and equitable, it means you have to give some of that up in order for us to live in the kind of country that we claim we want to live in. So from a moral standpoint, you go back to the words of Thomas Jefferson and others of the founders, but particularly him. How do you uh, teach this in a corporate environment? And uh, how do you get people to be motivated to, in some cases, give up so that uh, others uh, can be part of what's going on? I mean, that's the million dollar question. And the answers are, are very, very difficult. I hope that this moment is different than it's been in the past. Um, my own experience in interacting with companies and corporations is that they're much more focused on putting on a performance that they care without necessarily addressing the systematic underrepresentation of people of color within their ranks. So, you know, they love to bring people in to give talks on implicit biases and and do these things, but then you look at who's actually running the company, and there's very few people of color at, at most of these types of, of organizations. So I hope this moment causes companies and leaders to look at who is actually there and see the absence of particular groups as the outcome of systemic racism. And it's no longer a, well, you know, we, we did our best, nobody applied, or the pipeline isn't great. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to be an anti-racist company, then it's on you then to try to help build up that pipeline. So I hope that that's what happens. And I hope that all of these promises to fight systemic racism that came out in all these emails and all these public statements motivate these companies and these leaders to actually do something about changing the system that tends to underpopulate the pipeline with uh, people of color for these companies. It's like, okay, yeah, that's the problem. Now go out and fix it. You wanna be anti-racist? Then put in the work 
make the investments and fix that pipeline. Don't just use it as an excuse for not having African-American leaders in, in your ranks. We are in the midst of the most controversial presidency uh, since uh, I was born, certainly, and that was a fair long time ago. Uh, and I think uh, most people can say the same thing. Uh, how is the campaign this year, do you think, affecting uh, what you hope will be the progress in this area? This is, um, you know, I, I think back to um, courses I took in college where, you know, political science courses and courses like that, we're talking about you know, dog whistle politics and, and the way race was subtly used, right? So there's that famous Willie Horton ad um, used by um, the first Bush uh, president, right? Which uh, queued up a lot of racial resentment among, uh, you know, white Republican voters. And you look at that political maneuvering and it feels so quaint now, given how explicit the current president's rhetoric around xenophobia and racism is. And what I hope ends up happening is that now that, you know, sort of mainstream Americans are thinking and talking about systemic racism, this in combination with Trump's hard right politics strikes people as, oh, wow, like this country is deeply racist and we need to do something about it. So I'm hoping there's sort of an interaction um, uh, there such that people see what's happening on the streets, they hear the rhetoric, and they now have a different background upon which to interpret all of these actions. And hopefully it motivates people to accept that this country is uh, based on systemic racism, and now they're willing to, to do something about it. And that's as optimistic as I can get. Dr. King was an apostle of nonviolence. How concerned are you about violence in this context? Yeah, that, that's something that I, I, I myself have been grappling with, right? So here in LA, we had um, all sorts of unrest and rioting and businesses were burning in the, the weeks after George Floyd was murdered. And, and I'll admit it, my initial reaction was, oh, wow, this is, this is not a good look. Um, however, if you're trying to make the point that the system doesn't work, that the social contract that American citizens think we are bound by does not apply to African Americans. And if you start seeing that, then it makes sense to me that you would start acting in ways that are outright violent. You know, you start burning up businesses, you start trying to literally burn up the system in front of you as a way to express your frustration. I certainly don't condone that kind of violence, but I certainly understand how years and years of micro and macro aggressions around racism and years of having your concerns and complaints gaslighted and ignored and denied by people that actually have power would lead for entire communities to become incredibly frustrated. And then you get that video of, of George Floyd begging for his life. And that becomes, you know, that becomes the last straw. So you know, I certainly hope that we can use the institutions that we have currently, be it political institutions, going to city councils, trying to pass policies that are much more equitable and, and much more concerned with the issues that the Black Lives Matter movement has raised. But if that doesn't serve a purpose, then that's where you end up with social unrest. And that's how you end up with systematic changes. And unfortunately, I think violence is a part of that.
the phrase is Black Lives Matter. And of course, that goes back to slavery. Uh, and yet it seems to also include uh, other non-white elements of the population. How important is it that everybody gets together on this, including Latinos and Native Americans and Asians and others uh, who also feel that they are subject to uh, systemic racism? Yeah, so I, I want to be careful not to, you know, try to piggyback on Black Lives Matter by by trying to take the attention away on the unique issues that African Americans face in the country. And I think this moment is really drawing attention to that, specifically, you know, Black men's interactions with the police. That is one issue that is very pertinent and specific to African Americans in this country. That said, non-Black minority groups have their own versions of what systematic uh, oppression looks like. And I think to the extent that the conversation shifts towards a more systemic understanding of oppression, then we could end up with coalitions in which we try to figure out policy changes that hopefully will address specific problems, uh, but also more generally creates systemic solutions to a systemic problem. So I think it's an opportunity for allyship amongst different minority groups. I want to be careful not to try to override the attention that particular Black issues are getting right now. But I do think it's very important for all ethnic groups to try to think carefully about the systemic issues that they themselves are, are dealing with and try to use that as motivation for coalition building as we move forward. And I just want to make sure that uh, our listeners remember uh, that this is all true and all uh, very relevant in the private sector as well as the public sector. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's going to manifest very differently, say, in a corporation. But I do think that these conversations around the fact that inequality can be propagated not by individual bigots, but rather by the way the system tends to just operate normally, I think that's a very important conversation. And I think it's also very important for companies and universities to look at their demographics and notice who's there and who isn't there. And to start coding the absence of particular groups as itself a symptom of systemic racism and systemic inequality, and then try to figure out, okay, so what led to the severe underrepresentation of African-American professors? And then try to come up with systemic solutions to try to ensure that these individuals do get a shot at these jobs. That's what it's gonna come down to. It's a lot of work, but you send out those emails promising that you're gonna do something about systemic inequality, well, here's your chance. Miguel Unsueta, again, Professor of Management, Dean of MBA Programs at UCLA Anderson. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Warren. Pleasure to be here.